The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. Today, the rebound continues. Uh, Dow's up almost 450, and the S&P is on the cusp of going green for the week. After Russia signals, it is possibly willing to speak with Ukrainian officials. Our first guest this hour will break down how to maneuver your portfolio amid some of these moves. Then we check in on some of the biggest names in crypto. Block, Coinbase moving in some opposite directions. Block, formerly Square, up 20% right now. And later, look up to the clouds. The CEO of VMware is going to join us to break down the latest earnings and supply chain issues amid this Ukrainian crisis, John. Yep, but Carl, we're going to start with a big swing for tech stocks yesterday and how it's being played today. Dom Chu has that for us. Dom. It's a bit of a breather and maybe understandably so, John. It was 24 hours ago that we were sitting here together talking about the initial signs of some of the bounce that we were seeing in some of the most beaten up names within the Nasdaq specifically. And amongst that trade, we highlighted, first of all, the macro trade with regard to the Invesco QQQ, the Qs that track the Nasdaq 100 on that kind of one 24 hour day, you know, 24 hour basis and then a 48 hour basis. We saw that bottoming out happening with a nearly 3.5% decline at one point during the lows, only to close up by nearly 3.5% at the highs of the session so far into the close yesterday. That ramp up really gained steam in the latter part of the day, but still, we started to see those signs in the late morning on this particular show. Now, with regard to the components that were leading the way, the mega cap names, for obvious reasons, for market cap weighted indices, do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to some of those moves. To that end, we looked at names like Microsoft, and Google parent company Alphabet and Amazon as well. We talked about this kind of 48-hour trade, this 24 to 48-hour trade for some of these where we saw them bottoming out and then saw some picking on shopping lists being put to work there for Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, other large tech names. Some of the other ones that have had some of the biggest bounces are also taking a bit of a breather in today's session as well. We looked at Enphase Energy, which, by the way, ended up yesterday as the biggest gainer in the S&P 500. Tesla was also an outsized winner in yesterday's trade as well. And then Arista Networks when it comes to that computer software type, cloud computing type trade as well. And you can see those names starting to take a little bit of a break today given the massive moves that we saw yesterday. We also did highlight, guys, some of the travel trade. And yes, those are, again, taking a pause in today's trade as well. We looked at names like Booking Holdings. Alaska Airlines is, by the way, positive on the day, so it's got a little bit of near-term momentum. But Penn National Gaming on the casino side of things, also other hotel operators. We looked at names like Hilton and Hyatt and some other ones out there are all ones where we continue to watch here. But, Carl, the notion here is that, yes, we are seeing a very decent-sized update right now, but some of the ones that led the gains yesterday are maybe being a little bit more tepid in today's trade today, guys. And Dom, uh, overall, is it sort of a return to uh, value to some degree? I mean, I know yesterday we saw a lot of the growth names pick up again, but they had been beaten down, some of them, so far. 
Well, another point that we brought up yesterday, right, John, was this notion that if there was an interest rate portion of this narrative, if there was an inkling that perhaps interest rate policy or Fed tightening might be a little less hawkish in the coming months, that might lead to a revaluation of some of the sell-off and some of those big growth tech names that we've seen. To that end, many of those names, to your point, were the ones that bounced the most. Today, we are starting to see a little bit more normalcy. And when I say that, it's all relative, right? The 10-year Treasury note yield is back to around that 2% level, which is kind of the one that we've been watching, that level for a while now, with regard to that push higher in interest rates, at least on the long end of the curve. If we continue to see maybe this kind of more normalization, if you will, to the upside for some of those longer term rates, then maybe we start to see a little bit more of that kind of steam come off the momentum trade. That's something a lot of traders will be watching in the coming days and weeks, I'm sure, guys. Great point, Dom. Thank you, uh, Dominic. Shoot, kicking off the hour this morning. Uh, Bespoke Investment Group co-founder uh, Paul Hickey's joining us now. Talk about some context here, Paul. It's great to have you. Happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday indeed after this week. Wow. Yeah. We've made it to this point. You know, I think it was B of A this morning said uh, the two most frequent questions we get are when's a good time to start buying good growth again and when's the time to take profit on my best shorts? Uh, Their team says yesterday was the day. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, so yesterday in the morning, we hit real extreme oversold levels. Uh, You know, we were already extremely oversold and then another three percent decline into the open. And at the open, it was all sell off on the Russia going into Ukraine. And I mean, the, the market had been selling off on the, on the prospects of that for the last sev- several weeks. So I think, you know, part of it was just, you know, the shorts in the market coming in, covering, and it created a vacuum. And uh, what's, what's interesting is you had stocks after hours, uh, you look at Square or you look at Etsy, they're up 40% off their intraday lows yesterday. They're still down on the month. <laughs> I mean, so these kinds of moves are just... To, to try and read too much, everyone wants to say, is this a bottom? Is this a bottom? You know, it, this kind of, we're just going to see this kind of moves going forward in the, on the day-to-day for quite some time, I think. Uh, you know, we're, it's a headline-driven market. And as we get some resolution and, and see what happens with uh, Russia and Ukraine, then we'll be focused back on the Fed again. So I think you do want to have exposure to some growth. You don't want to have necessarily exposure to the hyper-growth uh, section of the market here especially since the Fed hasn't even hiked rates once yet. But, you, um, you know, more conservative tech uh, is certainly an area you want to be involved in. Yeah. You did point out earlier in the week that the, uh, the NASDAQ decline now is pretty much average uh, since its founding in the 70s. You know, we got to that 19.5 uh, or so. Um, and it's happened in a pretty fairly compressed time. Uh, I do wonder, though, these analogs to 2018 were fitting pretty well. But does Ukraine make a lot of that invalid now? So, I mean, in the short term, it made it makes a lot of it invalid. But I mean, I think these geopolitical events, um, you know, we, we, we look at every one of them and we say, oh, this one's different and it's more meaningful and more impactful than the last one or the ones past. But in the moment, all these geopolitical events always seem like they're, you know, really bad and much different. And then a year from now, you look back at them and you say, hey, Mill, you know what? Maybe that wasn't so bad. So just investing in everything in life, it's a lot easier in retrospect than in the present moment. And I think in that respect, uh, you know, as we move on, the Russia-Ukraine will be less of an issue and uh, we'll be back to focusing on the Fed again. Hey, Paul, it's Deirdre. Good morning. Um, 
What are semis telling you? You've called them a leading indicator before. Does that hold up in this market environment? And what are you seeing? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really glad you asked that. So, you know, you want to people are so ultra focused on the day to day moves of, in the market that we're, we're seeing. But what's really interesting here is the semis, uh, you know, they've been coming on for years now talking about how semis are a leading indicator of the economy and the markets. Uh, and it, it, you look back throughout history and you see that. And what's interesting is in early January, when the S&P made a new high, the relative strength of the semis didn't confirm that high. And then what we're seeing now, though, is the opposite. We've seen the S&P make a lower low. But if you I sent the chart, I don't know if you have the chart, but I, the S&P made a lower low. But the semis relative to the S&P 500 have actually been making uh, some incremental higher lows. So that's an encouraging thing to watch for um, as we move forward from here. And in the most recent sell-off here, I think only about you know a handful of semis have made new lows relative to January. Uh, less than half of the socks made a new low in February versus their January lows. And I think only four of them have made new 52-week lows um, in February. So that's something to watch it for a leading indicator to show some signs of stabilization. That's it. You know, that's what we want to look at and find and see to make us more constructive and more positive uh, that maybe this growth uh, move will have some legs. Paul, do, do you think any European economic impact from this Ukraine invasion is priced into stocks at this point? I mean, we, we've got the higher energy costs. We've got commodities spiking. We've got whatever the uh, emotional and sentiment impact uh, of this across Europe is going to be. The comps going forward are going to be somewhat challenging um, for for companies probably in, in how they're doing business in Europe. Is that priced in when you talk about the possibility that we'll get past this and, and look at uh, at the Fed as being a main driver? Yes, I mean, I, John, I think, uh, again, there's going to be an impact of this. But, you know, we've been selling off in the market uh, since, you know, for a month now on these moves uh, of what's going of, of Russia building up troops. And when you put over 100,000 troops on the border, they weren't, Russia wasn't just doing that um, as a bluff, you know? So I think markets were anticipating that there was gonna be uh, some sort of movement here and hence the weakness that you saw. Uh, you know, back in Desert, uh, Desert Storm, we put in, you know, in 2003, we put up, I think 250,000 US troops uh, leading and in, going into Iraq, and we eventually moved into Iraq. So I think the markets were anticipating this move. Uh, there's going to be some short-term impact, but oil, since since actually the movement happened yesterday, oil's, I, I think it's last I looked this morning, it was down um, since then. So again, the market tends to move, look price and, and price these things in ahead of time. Yeah, uh, yeah, oil is down this morning, and we've been talking about the XLE being down for the month. Uh, finally, yeah, Paul, yeah. you know, You've done a good screen of um, names in tech that are low multiple and high yielding at the same time. And it's a lot of old school tech. I wonder how you balance those benefits with the view that a lot of these names may be vulnerable just competitively. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting. You, you, you look at the names that have the lowest multiples and the highest yields. You wouldn't even, you know, most a lot of people wouldn't even know that they were tech stocks still. Uh, you know, you have like Western Union is 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 one of the names. Both HPs are are part of the list. 
Um, you have Seagate, though. Seagate's, uh, you know, an interesting name there. It pays a almost a 3% yield. Uh, there's always concerns over that company's future. It's been like that for years. I mean, just that they're competitive threats, but they constantly have delivered over the years. Uh, so that's, you know, that's, uh, those names are, are boring. They're not going to be the most exciting names that we talk about on CNBC every day, but they held up very well this year. Uh, some of them are actually up, but the few tech stocks that are up, whereas the high multiple, low or, or, or no yielding stocks are, are down an average of well over 20 percentage points so far this year. So I think, uh, you know, boring in these kind of um, headline explosive moments is usually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, some days, Paul, I wonder what we would do without uh, Bespoke. A really valuable tool, as always. Good to see what you. What would we do without you? <laughs> <laughs> see you later. Everyone on Tech Chat. Mutual appreciation there. Meantime, social media is once again having trouble combating misinformation and disinformation, this time on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Our Julia Borston explains, and Julia, we've certainly seen this before. The question is, how has the playbook changed? Well, look, the social media platforms are right now battling a surge in misinformation and disinformation. We're seeing video game, historical and fake footage posted by users on various platforms. Those users saying that it's contemporary from Ukraine. We've also seen Instagram meme pages falsely promote videos saying that it's from journalists on the ground. Now, we have seen many of those accounts taken down and Facebook saying it's established a special operations center and has launched a feature that enables Ukrainian users to lock their profiles so people who aren't their friends can't see their photo or any of their posts. Now, Meta's VP of Global Affairs, Nick Clegg, tweeting out, quote, we're taking extensive steps to fight the spread of misinformation and labeling content from state-controlled media and content that fact-checkers have rated false. And our cybersecurity teams are monitoring closely for coordinated attempts to abuse our platform. Now, it's not just Meta's platforms that are dealing with this. TikTok users have posted historical videos saying inaccurately that they're capturing the recent invasion of Ukraine. They're also showing false videos to solicit donations through TikTok. The company tells us it is removing content that contains harmful misinformation. Now, meanwhile, on Twitter, Ukraine's Twitter handle asked the platform to remove Russia, saying, quote, they should not be allowed to use these platforms to promote their image while brutally killing the Ukrainian people. Twitter not responding directly to that request, just telling us that it is trying to keep people safe. Now, there are a couple of platforms that are benefiting from this conflict right now. Encrypted messaging service Signal surged to be the number one free iPhone app in Ukraine's app store. And messaging app Telegram has also seen a surge in usage as Ukraine's president and other Ukrainian officials, along with the publication Kiev Independent, use Telegram to share their news. Guys? Julie, so, appreciate Julie, that. As usual, you know, a lot of the focus is... Sorry, Carl. As usual, Julia, the focus, a lot of it is on Facebook and Twitter and increasingly TikTok. Again, this question comes up. What about YouTube that has the same issues with misinformation? Is there a special operations unit there? Are the problems different? How are they dealing with it? Yes, you're absolutely right, Deirdre. YouTube also has the same issue. People are able to post fake videos or post a real video taken 10 years ago and say that it was just taken yesterday. So YouTube is also dealing with these issues. They have similar policies about pulling down 
any video that could incite, uh, incite violence or that violates its terms of service. But one thing that all of these companies have told me, Deirdre, as I've reached out to them multiple times, this is a whack-a-mole situation. Some of this content is pulled down by algorithms and they're able to keep it from even being shared. But then a lot of this content is shared and then people report it and then it has to be pulled down. So this is going to be a really tough battle. This is really a test of these platforms, Deirdre, especially as you think about the regulatory consideration of whether or not Section 230 should be reevaluated, should be changed to hold them more accountable for the content that they share on their platforms. Yeah, uh, the same dynamic we've talked about for a while, but with a, a whole other chapter. Uh, Julia, thanks. We do have some remarkable trading activity here now. Dow's up 612, uh, which now makes it the best day of the year for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And remarkably, given all the news of the week, the S&P is now on pace for a weekly gain. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. The indices might be sharply higher, but Zscaler, one name that's plunging, that's despite reporting its fastest growth in three years. Big reversal from the stock's 10% gain yesterday. Cybersecurity was one area in the green as the Russia-Ukraine conflict prompted fear of new attacks. And at Zscaler's light guidance in this case that is concerning investors this morning. A number of price target cuts also weighing on the stock. But Wedbush maintains its outperform rating, saying Zscaler is still in its early days. Calls it a unique growth name to own for the coming years. The stock might have taken a hit this year, but it's still up more than 300% in two years. CEO Jay Chowdhury joins Mad Money tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern. D. Let's turn now to Fintech. Coinbase and Block both beating the street in Q4. Revenue and earnings coming in above the consensus, but Coinbase shares, uh, they were lower this morning after projecting lower trading volume for the current quarter. Meanwhile, Block is surging. If that's still the case, these markets are moving quickly. Joining us now for a closer look, Mizuho Managing Director and Senior Fintech Analyst, Dan Dolev. Uh, Dan, Maybe let's start by breaking down the positioning of Block versus Coinbase. Right now, of course, they have very different purposes. But if both ultimately want to be that sort of one-stop fintech shop for a younger base of users, who's better positioned? You know, one single word, Block, Square, right? I mean, they're already there. They have the point-of-sale business. They've got the Cash App, which is usually successful. They are allowing people to trade Bitcoin, and they're even thinking further out, which which is the TV uh, DX protocol, which is a kind of a fiat to crypto to crypto to fiat protocol, which is going to basically create a global P2P network. 
So 100% uh, Square or Block over Coinbase. You seem so certain in that. Um, But I wonder, Dan, if Jack Dorsey's Bitcoin maximalism could eventually hurt where sort of the younger generation is going. Coin has taken a much more Web3 focused uh, purpose, you know, talking about DAO tools and an NFT platform. So where this audience, where this group of users is heading, is Block still best positioned? Yeah, I think it's actually a fascinating point that you're making. Yeah, he is a maximalist. But if you actually read the uh, TBDX protocol very carefully, you see that they don't just talk about Bitcoin. They talk about a multitude of cryptocurrencies. And when they talk about fiat to crypto to crypto to fiat, they talk about all these currencies. So I think there's definitely maybe a little bit of a relaxation from that Bitcoin maximalism on their side. But I do agree with you that. And on, on the NFT marketplace, I do think it's a very positive development. For, for Coinbase. One of my issues with Coinbase is basically, if you think about crypto or, or you know Bitcoin or blockchain in general, it should be free. It should be, uh, you shouldn't be charging like these fees for that. So I think that it kind of yeah. defies the purpose to have a centralized um, you know, marketplace. It should all be decentralized. And I think that's where Square Block is yeah. headed to. And that's the, uh, not where Block is, uh, Coinbase is headed to. Dan, that's a that's an interesting point that you bring up. We talked to the Binance CEO, CZ, about this a few weeks ago, and he said that some of these platforms, he didn't call any out by name, have hidden fees. So a Coinbase, for example, has the transaction fee, but there's also the spread that it's making that's unclear to the user right now, right? Do you think that eventually users wake up to that and this becomes a payment for order flow type thing where, you know, people want more transparency or the spread comes down for them and thus their profitability. So it's, you know, in a, in a capitalist, you know, market, it's the spread comes down because of market pressures. I mean, you could like, if you want to peek into the future, you look at, you know, Robinhood, which we like a lot, which is basically offering it on a pay for order flow, kind of similar situation. So they're essentially offering it for free. That's where it's headed. And by the way, if you look at institutional yields, they've actually come down. There were two basis points, two basis mm-hmm. points versus over 100 basis points for retail, and they've been coming down. That's the future of crypto trading. It's not maybe not free, but essentially free. Yeah, and that's that's what that's what Robinhood is essentially doing. Last one for you, Dan. Something that caught my eye in the block earnings was that customer acquisition cost for the cash app ten dollars now versus an historic five dollars. What does that say about fintech as a business and the competition that has exploded over the last few years? What do you think that CAC is for some of the other uh, platforms in the space? Yeah, I think that it's a great insight that, that you're mentioning because it's it, we actually noticed that too. And I remember it used to be five, now it's 10. I mean, you could say it's inflation, right? I don't know if that's really the answer. I think what's happening is that You've reached sort of a, a very high point in terms of how many customers. I mean, they have 44 million uh, monthly active users, right? It's a huge number. Like at some point, you're really reaching every American with a phone. And so it becomes a little harder, a little more cumbersome to get that incremental customer. So I'm not surprised seeing customer acquisition. The key question is the lifetime value to the to the CAC, right? So if the lifetime value in the ARPU continues to expand, it really doesn't matter how much you spend on the customer because they're very productive. Right. And you think Block is well positioned here. Uh, Dan Dolov, thanks for your insights as always. Talk to you soon. Thank you. 
In the meantime, stocks continue to surge here. Dow's up 621. Uh, we're now closer to 4,400 than 4,300. After the best, after that reversal yesterday, it is the best day of the year so far for the Dow. Nasdaq is up a full percent. We'll get a live update as well on Russia-Ukraine after the break. Meantime, the VMware CEO is going to join us to break down earnings in the state of the cloud when TechCheck comes back in a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Obviously, watching the tape here, Dow's up 600. Stocks are broadly continuing the rally from yesterday. In fact, even the Nasdaq's green for the week. All sectors in the green. Uh, tech re- lagging on a relative basis. Got some interesting trades as well. Etsy stock was up 20% pre-market. We continue to watch uh, the trading on that as we had some strong earnings. Uh, continues to benefit from the pandemic e-commerce boom and expects more of the same going forward. Stock is one of the pandemic winners like Zoom or Carvana though, that has been crushed in the last three months. Etsy's trading at half of what it was in November, although interestingly still tripled since February of 2020. Josh Silverman was on Squawk and Andrew asked him about market valuation. I think we've seen an indiscriminate pullback across all of the pandemic stocks. And I think the the market is maybe scared of uh, whether all of the pandemic gains are going to dissipate. And uh, so it's going to take some time for the market to sort out winners from losers. What I'll say about Etsy is that, uh, you know, we think that the earnings report we gave yesterday demonstrated the durability of Etsy's growth. Etsy is now more than twice as big as it was pre-pandemic. In fact, we're twice as big in the U.S. We're four times as big as we were pre-pandemic in the U.K. Yeah, you know, (laughs) D, I I think... For me, it comes down to it was really hard to justify the multiples that these names were getting before. And so now it's kind of hard to knock the multiples they're getting now. Like if you were to back up two years and there were three years and see where they were trading and then, you know, put a dot where they're trading now and then draw a squiggly line up. It would, oh, well, that would look pretty reasonable. Right. I mean, it's still it's still higher, just not that high. And so I think there are a lot of cases where yeah. investors have got to decide How do we want to value these things? Yeah, where do they land? And I thought it was uh, interesting how he was very aware of that sort of pandemic darling status. And speaking of that, Carl, we do have a few more uh, coming up like Zoom and DocuSign. Those are big names. And we'll see what their fundamentals tell us about that valuation level, where that falls. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, hiking transaction fees uh, from five to six and a half. We'll watch that as well. We're going to bring you the latest on Ukraine and an exclusive with the CEO of VMware, as we said in a moment, after a news update with Rahel Solomon. 
Hi, Carl. Good morning. Yeah, and here's what's happening at this hour. Austria's chancellor is saying that the EU will impose sanctions on Russian President Putin and Foreign Minister Lavrov. Other European leaders say that tougher sanctions are still under discussion, including cutting off Russia from the SWIFT banking system. Ukraine also says that its National Guard is taking up positions to guard Kyiv from Russian attacks. This as missile strikes continue in the capital city. Those officials say that Russian forces are facing more resistance than Moscow expected, but attacks, that con- attacks continue on multiple fronts there. The Federal Reserve's favorite gauge on inflation jumped 5.2 percent in the year through January. The core PCA, PCE index rose only slightly above estimates, but it's the biggest annual rise going back to 1983. Meanwhile, personal spending shot up more than 2 percent just in January. Personal income was flat for the month. And Johnson & Johnson and three drug distributors have finalized a $26 billion settlement over their role in the opioid addiction crisis. It is the largest opioid settlement yet. Today's announcement clears the way for the money to flow to nearly every state and local government in the U.S. You're now up to date. Deidre, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Let's get more on the rapidly evolving situation in Ukraine. President Biden speaking to NATO leaders from the Situation Room for an emergency summit this morning. Our Steve Sedgwick is live from Krakow with the latest. Steve. Deirdre, thanks very much indeed. There are so many levels, as all our viewers, I'm sure, are aware of what this story is going on at the moment. The most important and critical was, like we just heard in the news there, that the now the battle for Kiev has begun. Uh, the mayor of, uh, of Kiev, a man I've met many times, uh, uh, the former champion boxer Vitaly Klitschko, talking about a defensive phase. And there's all kinds of contrary evidence about what's going on. We heard about uh, some people saying the Russians are finding uh, heavier resistance. We've heard the defense minister of Ukraine talking about large numbers of tanks and armored vehicles having been destroyed. Of course, the Russians are disputing that and are making ground uh, across the country and getting some key targets, including a key airfield northwest of Kiev. This is going on other levels as well, and of course on the sanctions and political level as well. We've heard about some of the EU sanctions, sanctions on the assets of uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia, and of course uh, President Vladimir Putin as well. And the huge debate going on transatlantic is whether to ban Russia from that swift payment transaction system. We understand the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is keen on it. Uh, Americans could be persuaded too, but Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, is against it at the moment because of the ramifications it could have for European energy supplies and the payment of those to Russia. If Europe is cut off from those Russian energy supplies, as I'm sure all our viewers know, that is a hell of a lot of gas and oil which will not be getting to the European economy, especially the German economy. Very, very interesting seeing what's going on at a NATO level as well. And one of the reasons why I'm in Krakow is because not a very far uh, distance from me, uh, there is a huge build-up uh, of a American uh, boots on the ground. We've got the 82nd Airborne, which of course uh, normally out of Fort Bragg uh, is here on the ground. 4,700 troopers uh, from that division are here as well, plus other U.S. troops in the country, plus 16 F-15s have flown in from uh, the U.K. and indeed from the United States as well, uh, plus Apache gunships. And we also saw this staggering picture of an F-35 being refueled above Poland in the last 24 hours. So NATO is seeing a larger build-up for uh, defensive reasons in areas such as Poland. Poland, for instance, is one of the biggest NATO spenders, especially in Eastern Europe. And the Prime Minister in an editorial in the FT has been very aggressive in the last 24 hours, saying now is the time for the EU 
for the UK and, of course, especially the United States to come together uh, and start facing down the threat that they should have faced down many years ago uh, of Russia as well, because he is saying, the Prime Minister of Poland, that Russia will not want to just stop at Ukraine. It will try and erode uh, the situation in the Baltic states, the likes of Lithuania, Latvia, uh, and Estonia and, of course, Poland as well, which we all know historically uh, has been right at the centre of these events and, of course, geographically as well. As I say, here in Poland, we have a 332-mile border with Ukraine, of course, and we are expecting at some stage those US uh, paratroopers to potentially be helping in the humanitarian effort if indeed we do see this flood of refugees coming from across the border, uh, coming west from Lvov uh, in the west of Ukraine, over the border uh, towards where I am now and the likes of Krakow as well. And the final area I want to just concentrate on very briefly, Deirdre, is the talks. Now, we have heard that the Russians potentially are open to talks, but on their terms and their terms, which I don't think at the moment the Ukrainians can accept at all, including having those talks in Belarus, which, of course, is a key ally uh, of President Putin and and also saying, if you want talks, you've got to demilitarise. Well, at the moment, President Zelensky is saying that it just isn't on the table. Back to you all. Steve Sedgwick, thank you. And turning now to VMware, shares uh, trading gains and losses now about flat this morning, despite a beat on the top and bottom lines in Q4. Guidance is what has investors concerned, both EPS and revenue projections for Q1 coming in below street estimates. For more on the quarter, we are joined exclusively by VMware CEO Raghu Raghuram. Uh, Great to have you on. I believe first time as CEO. Uh, let me start with the, the troubling situation that we see in Europe. Um, the, the cloud and this uh, digital revolution that we're seeing is global. Do you have any expectations based on your conversations with customers that do business in Europe for how this will affect not just VMware, but uh, the overall industry? Yeah, so great to be here uh, and great to meet you. Um, clearly, the situation in uh, Europe and specifically Ukraine is uh, uh, very critical. Lots of uh, ramifications, but also very dynamic and very day-to-day. -day. Our thoughts uh, are with uh, the people that are impacted as well as for certainly our employees and our customers and the folks that we work with. Answering your question specifically, um, our customers in Europe and worldwide uh, certainly are watching the situation very closely. They have not indicated any new plans to us, but the trends that they are undertaking are secular trends, or they are reacting to secular trends in their business, the need to become digital, the need to become modern software-centric enterprises, taking advantage of the cloud, making sure that they have protected their digital assets with uh, cyber, uh, making their employees uh, working from home very productive. So these secular IT trends that they're talking to us about, mm -hmm. those haven't changed, but for sure, this is a very dynamic situation and uh, the changes could happen day to day. Of course, yes. Now, getting into your quarter specifically, I uh, want to ask about billings. Uh, I believe they're at four and a half billion a hair above. And some people were hoping for five. How does the shift towards subscription play into that, and how do you expect that to uh, develop for the rest of the year? Yeah, so we were very pleased with how we finished up last year. We set the stage for accelerating our subscription um, uh, side of our business uh, this year, both from product innovation perspective as well as uh, um, 
getting our go-to-market engine uh, revved up to accelerate our SaaS uh, and subscription business. This is reflecting how customers want to consume our software on a day-to-day -day basis. And so we expect to see that happen in terms of how we can accelerate our customers moving to the cloud and uh, using our products. And that is reflected in an increased subscription and SaaS revenue for that we are forecasting for this year, that we are guiding for this year. Uh, but as you well know, with subscription revenues increase, there is some impact uh, that it has, the mix shift has on the top line. And that's how we came to our guidance. Indeed. Um, now, you, you talked a lot about multi-cloud and yep. that's always been, or long been, I should say, uh, a, a big piece of VMware story. More and more yeah. as I talk to companies in the space, multi-cloud and wanting to be the vendor of choice to drive that transition and that movement uh, is in their crosshair. So what's your unique strategy, uh, perhaps even given VMware's $50 billion market cap, for making sure that you end up winning as so many are, are running for that goal? Yeah, so that's a great question. Multi-cloud is a pervasive industry-wide phenomenon and different companies focus on different parts of uh, the multi-cloud opportunity. For us as VMware, what we focus on is helping enterprises transform their enterprise applications into modern cloud-delivered applications on the cloud of their choice. As we all know, there are multiple big cloud platform providers providing these capabilities. VMware strength is uh, threefold. Number one, we have been the foundation for our customers for the last 20 years in their data centers. All of our customers' IT teams are very used to VMware. They trust VMware. And so uh, we are in a pole position, if you will, to help them on their journey to modernization and to the cloud. The second is our portfolio. Our portfolio is very unique. It uh, solves the problems not only of accelerating how they can build these new applications, it solves the problems of how they manage it, how they govern and control it, how they secure it, and how they connect it back to what they've already got on-premise or in other places. And then the third uh, advantage that we have that is very unique is uh, since our uh, spin-out from Dell, we are a standalone independent company that has the deepest of partnerships with all of the hyperscaler uh, providers and all of the cloud providers. Mm. So we are in fact the Switzerland of the industry. And there is no single company that uh, can offer these three advantages to uh, enterprise customers. Right. And what the customers often tell us is they are, we address three critical P's for them, time, talent, and trust. We accelerate the time it takes for them to go to the cloud, we uh, uh, make it possible for them to do it with the talent they have. Mm. And then of course, we have the trusted foundation. All right. Well. Uh... Raghu, thanks for joining us. I hope you'll continue to as the story plays out, CEO of VMware. Yes, thank you very much. Let's get a check on crypto this morning as well. Bitcoin and Ether both rebounding today as a Ukraine central bank suspends electronic cash transfers. We're going to break down how some of these uh, potential sanctions affect crypto after the break. With Dow hanging on to a gain of almost 600. Ukraine central bank suspending digital payments overnight as part of martial law during the Russian invasion. Kate Rooney has more on how this impacts the case for crypto. And there's so many different faucets of this, Kate, different, being treated much differently in Russia versus Ukraine versus other places in the world. Yeah, that's right. We're seeing that play out in real time. And those, those new electronic transfer rules in Ukraine don't apply to cryptocurrencies yet. I'm told 
That could change in the coming days, but crypto has been emerging as a viable alternative in Eastern Europe. Sources tell me it's a lot more viable in Ukraine right now versus Russia. Ukraine legalized Bitcoin as part of a wider push to accept crypto. Chainalysis ranks the country number four globally for crypto adoption. It has more established exchanges. And this week, we've seen a surge in donations to the Ukrainian army in crypto. Dollar-pegged coins, or stable coins, as they're called, are also trading at a premium right now in exchanges that tends to be a sign of demand. Russia, meanwhile, has sort of flip-flopped on its policy. It looked to ban the industry a few weeks ago. Crypto is not widely accepted for transactions there. And an alternative finance system could also threaten Putin's autocracy, that's something sources have been pointing out. And not to mention, Russia is also developing its own central bank digital currency. The U.S. and NATO allies have not locked Russia out of the SWIFT system. We did just get some headlines that the German finance minister said that they're still open to doing that and cutting Russia off. And while sanctions, though, may drive demand for crypto, it is harder to evade those, especially for your average Russian citizen using an exchange. Sam Bankman-Fried CEO of FTX told me that this week. He said global exchanges work really closely with law enforcement to shut down illicit or sanctioned accounts. He said it's also pretty easy to track. Criminals will like choose to use Bitcoin because it's sort of like what you're told you're supposed to use to launder funds. And then they'll like get caught and, and sort of like I, I think I think maybe in retrospect, sometimes regret having done it. Um, and uh you know, is what I must imagine is happening because, yeah, it is like actually pretty traceable. Chainalysis this morning told me that they're really not seeing any unusual transaction volume out of Russia or Ukraine at this point. Russia's elite and financial authorities have been preparing for sanctions for months now. So if they were going to move large amounts of crypto, they probably already did that. Guys. Yeah, Kate, thank you so much. So many different uh, faucets and ways of exploring this, especially the role of crypto in the current situation. Meanwhile, stay up to date on all things crypto with our digital show, Crypto World. Watch at cnbc.com slash crypto world. Tech Check is back in just two. Got some news alerts here on Meta and Facebook. Julia Borston's watching that. Julia? That is right, Carl. Russia's communications regulator said just today that the company was partially limiting access to meta platforms Facebook, saying this is in response to restrictions that the social giant has imposed on Russian media, accusing Facebook of censorship. This uh, Russian regulator saying that Facebook limited the official accounts of four Russian media sites, saying such actions against Russian internet resources and the media are prohibited by federal law. Now, we re have reached out to Meta for comment. We have not gotten a comment yet back about this. And it is unclear exactly what these restrictions on the social platform are or will be. Guys, back over to you. Julie, I know you'll be tracking it and bring us any developments. Up next, the musts are in hot water. The SEC reportedly probing Elon and his brother for insider trading following their Tesla share sales Earlier this year, we will bring you that in just a few minutes. Don't go anywhere. Let's get a gut check on Apple today. Got some new data from Sensor Tower that shows revenue for the App Store surged in 2021. Sales from the top 100 non-game subscription apps is up more than 30% year-on-year to $13.5 billion worldwide, almost triple the revenue from Google's App Store. YouTube, the number one app in terms of consumer spending globally. Number two, Tinder. Then Tencent Video 
rounding out the top three. Apple, of course, D bounced right off that 200-day yesterday of 151, which some saw as a very critical ground to hold. Yep, and making more today uh, on that app store. Interesting to note, too, a number of those apps in the top 10 was, uh, was, were Chinese apps. News from the SEC today. We're going to talk about this a little later. Let's get to a break. We'll be right back. Musk and his brother Kimball Musk reportedly under investigation after selling Tesla shares a few months ago. Robert Frank breaks down the controversy. Robert. Well, John, as with any insider trading case, the question for Kimball Musk will be, what did he know and when did he know it? Kimball Musk is also a Tesla board member, of course. Insider trading rules prohibits employees and board members from trading based on material, non-public information. The issue here is Kimball's stock sale a day before Elon Musk tweeted out that poll. So here is the critical timeline. On September 14th, Elon created a 10B51 stock selling program to sell Tesla shares. This was not announced to the public at the time. On November 5th, Kimball Musk sells $109 million of his Tesla stock. That's more than 15% of his total holdings. He sells at an average price of over $1,200 a share. The next day, Elon tweets out about that poll selling 10% of his entire Tesla stake. Now, Tesla shares fall 14% over the next two days. On November 10th, Musk sells $4.5 billion in shares. That's the first of his sales that eventually reached $16 billion by the end of December. Tesla now trading at about $800 a share. That is 35% lower than the Kimball Musk sale price. Elon Musk telling the FT, Kimball had, quote, no idea I was going to do this poll and that the Tesla lawyers were notified. So, so guys, just total coincidence here according to Elon Musk. Robert, uh, remarkable. All the headlines this week regarding Tesla and the SEC, the back and forth. We'll see how much uh, that heats up uh, in the coming days. That's our Robert Frank. Uh, remarkable week. John, as we mentioned, Dow's now up 705. As we said earlier, it does make it the best day of the year for the Dow. Yes, and we've been reporting on earnings happening as well. Question is, uh, how, if at all, these geopol uh, geopolitical issues are going to impact the stocks themselves? Yeah, a lot of data next week as well, including ISM, Powell, and a jobs number. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.